Let us pray. Risen Lord, open our eyes that we may see you. Open our ears that we may hear what you wish to say to us today. Open our minds to new opportunities, new possibilities. Keep us flexible in our faith. Teach our hearts to burn within us with a passion that is unextinguishable, that we may share your, your good news and grow your kingdom in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of us have walked the road to Emmaus. Probably only a few of you have been fortunate enough to be actually able to walk the 10-kilometre track from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. But most of you have, at some time or another, walked the road that the two disciples walked in our Gospel story today. The road to Emmaus is the road to giving up. It's the road of disillusionment, of despair, of throwing in the towel. It's the road of turning our backs on the bright hopes of yesterday and resigning ourselves to the shattered dreams and endless days ahead of just putting one foot in front of another with nothing much to look forward to. It's the road we trudge when everything we had invested our hopes in has gone up in smoke. And so now living is nothing more than surviving. There's no meaning, no direction, no promise, just nothing. Whether it's a relationship failure or unemployment or chronic illness or an accident or disaster or betrayal of friends or the loss of someone close or the inability to conquer our own personal demons that keeps dragging us back to the same destructive attitudes and behaviours, whatever it is. Most of us have at some time or another, maybe even now, we know the defeated trudge of the Emmaus Road. We know what it feels like when everything we believed in is reduced to ashes and in one crushing moment we've lost all hope that there might ever be a bright new tomorrow. Everything we thought had been promised to us has been nailed to a tree and has been bled humiliatingly to death before our eyes. And now we're leaving it behind, dead and buried, and we're heading for Emmaus, the place where the despairing go to, to escape from the embarrassing memory of what they once naively believed in. But it's there on the road to Emmaus, on the road of despair, of giving up, it's there that Jesus meets them. They are so thoroughly crushed that they don't even recognise Jesus when he appears. It's from the trampled ashes of their abandoned hopes that he could begin to open up to them the truth of who God is 
and of what the scriptures mean and of how God is really defeating the darkness that seems to control the world. And perhaps it has to be so. Perhaps there is no other way. Perhaps our naive hopes and dreams will always make us completely blind to what God is really on about. And there's no way for God to get through to us until our self-serving fantasies have been crushed and our delusions have been purged. When we come to the end of ourselves and our own self-sufficiency. Perhaps it's often the naivety of our beliefs that has to die before we can meet the truth on the Emmaus Road. I find this passage from Luke's Gospel one of the most frustrating stories in the Bible. I love it. It's one of the best stories in the Bible. But it's one of the most frustrating. It's a story that could have given us so many answers. Just imagine what it would be like to have a record of these words of Jesus. All that teaching he gave them on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. If those words had been recorded, we would have an account of Jesus' own understanding post-resurrection of who he was as Messiah. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. What a wonderful exposition about messiahship. What a strong witness, you would think, to the Jews of the day about Jesus' identity as Messiah. But this is not what the gospel recorded. This lesson post-resurrection from Jesus' own lips has not been preserved. Now, the Gospels do a pretty good job each in their own way of retelling the important things about Jesus, the things we need to remember, the things that changed the lives of people 2,000 years ago and continue to change lives today. So what do we make of all this? Why don't we have the record of Jesus' own teaching about himself? Well, Luke tells us that the two who walked the road with him that day did not recognise him in that teaching. I find that really fascinating. Head knowledge about Jesus is not enough. All the good biblical study in the world is not enough. Knowledge alone was not enough to send them back to Jerusalem. They heard his teaching and when they got to Emmaus, they were ready to offer him a place to stay and a meal, but they still didn't know him. You can't convert someone by intellectual arguments or even biblical proofs. What was it that turned their lives around that day? Well, I want to draw something else important from the text. Jesus' sermon that day, even though we don't have the text of it, we do know was not in the mode of the sermons that we often like to hear, which do little more than confirm and comfort us in the space of that which we already know, what we're familiar with and what doesn't make us squirm too much. 
No. This is profoundly uncomfortable, disconfirming preaching. Jesus begins by castigating them for their lack of faith in the prophets. And then he proceeds to deconstruct their scriptural knowledge so radically that the meaning of it is utterly and irreversibly altered. And the results were, I can just imagine, terrifying. Suddenly the disciples begin to see that everything they'd ever known and believed was wrong. And yet despite the upset, there's something in what Jesus says that compels them to hang on to him, to not let him go. And I'm sure it's much more than just cultural uh, politeness. So Jesus stayed. And when he sat down at table and broke the bread, when, when he reenacted what they had seen him do so many times, and especially that last time that he'd done this, only then their eyes were opened and they recognised him. And then he was gone again. But something new remained. The disciples shared with each other the way in which their hearts had been burning within them when they had heard Jesus preach. Now the word here in the text that's used for burning within them is much more about describing the concept of being purged by a bushfire than it is sort of a warm and cosy open fire on a winter's night or sipping on a hot toddy. Sort of a warm, comforting glow. That's not what this passage is talking about. There's a lovely old Hasidic tale, a Jewish tale, where a disciple comes up to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, why does Torah tell us to place these words upon our hearts? Why does it not tell us to place these holy words in our hearts? And the rabbi answers, It is because as we are, our hearts are closed and we cannot place the holy words in our hearts. So we place them on top of our hearts and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. The disciples rose from where they were and returned to the place of despair and forlorn logic from which they'd come just a few hours before. They returned to Jerusalem in the dark. Let's not forget that. But with a distinct and special mission to declare and confirm that Christ had indeed been raised and that he had made himself known to them. They returned to Jerusalem to disconfirm the misconceptions and the misunderstandings which held sway there, to interrupt and to fragment that shadowy power of human certainty that we cling to so tightly. And they were compelled by the burning presence of all that they had glimpsed in the risen Christ. What was it that turned 
their lives around that day? What was it that sent them rushing back that seven miles or ten kilometres in the dark to Jerusalem? We know that they recognised him in the breaking of the bread, but rather than spinning off into a discussion of how Jesus comes to us in the sacrament of Eucharist, which he certainly does, I don't want to go there today. I want us to try and stick with the basics. It was the recognition that turned them around, both figuratively and literally, and sent them back. They recognised him. They knew him. They saw who he was. They met him in that moment. The arguments and reasonings on the road did not ultimately matter. What mattered was the encounter, that moment of recognition, the moment of presence that was felt and received. That was what sent them back. That was what turned their lives around forever. Jesus was alive and they knew it. They had met him. A friend of ours, Dr Alexander Shire, is a biblical scholar and he's raised awareness in his scholarship of some interesting observations on the four Gospels in particular. He speaks about the geographical background of each of the four Gospels of being quite unique and how the authors have each used this to draw out their own unique nuances and emphases. I've never heard anyone else talk about this, but it makes such great sense. Matthew, for example, has used a mountain as a place where the most important events took place. Mark uses a stormy sea or a desert as his backdrop. And John uses a beautiful garden. But the background motif of Luke's gospel is even more subtle. Luke has the key events and conversations taking place on a road or during the journey from one place to another. On the way is Luke's chosen backdrop. And this is especially true for the encounter we have today on the road to Emmaus. This story is only in Luke's gospel, by the way, none of the other three. The Christian life is one that takes place on the way. Discipleship is all about the journey and discovering, as the two disciples did on this journey, that Jesus travels with us, that he draws alongside us wherever we are, whatever we're doing, however we're feeling, whatever we're thinking. Jesus draws alongside us. He challenges our preconceptions. He clarifies and broadens our understandings. He helps the pieces to fall into place. And he causes, if we let him, our hearts to burn within us. Not a nice warm glow, remember, but a raging bushfire of insight, inspiration, 
cleansing, renewing, bringing healing and forgiveness, spurring us on to courage, filling us with hope and joy and new life, reminding us that with God all things are possible. He shows us who he is in spending time with us, in the simplicity of a meal, in the sharing of the ordinary and everyday things of life. This is where Jesus wants to meet us. He wants us to know him intimately, to do life together, constantly, to share the journey and to make the journey his. The Jesus we journey with, like those two disciples that day, is the one who bears the scars of suffering and death but also the one who reveals the glory of God himself as the living hope of eternal life. And like those two disciples so long ago, this needs to change us. No one who's really seen and recognised the risen Christ can carry on like nothing changes. Everything is changed. Everything must be changed. And most importantly, our whole purpose in life must be changed. Our journey must become Christ's journey. We must be compelled to go back to share what we have seen and known and to spread his good news like a raging bushfire. Our journey of life our discipleship on the way needs to connect really firmly with the great commission that Jesus left us. Go, live your lives, walk the journey of your life, and as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember that I am with you always to the end of time. May Jesus be with you on the way this week, this year, for the rest of your life. May you journey with him. May you journey toward him. May you journey for him. And may your hearts burn within you with the passion that he instills in us through his spirit. The Lord be with you.